For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, get a preview of the governor's upcoming State of the State address. Meet a pair of Tucson astronomers who will be featured on the next episode of NOVA. A look back at a groundbreaking Mexican film from 1976, Canoa, A Shameful Memory. And actor and musician Chris Lemon shares stories about his famous father, Jack Lemon. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Governor Doug Ducey will deliver his State of the State address on Monday. Lorraine Rivera recently conducted a one-on-one interview with the governor to talk about his vision for Arizona's future. She joins me now to tell us more. Hello, Lorraine. Thanks for being here. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. A just-released poll of Arizona voters indicates that education is the number one concern among them, even beyond border issues. What did Governor Ducey have to say about education? Education continues to be at the forefront for Governor Ducey, and there are the critics who will say, no, it's not. Put your money where you know your mouth is when it comes to that issue. But the truth is there have been more dollars pumped into the K-12 through education system here in the state of Arizona. Governor says that come 2018, which we interviewed him just before the end of uh, last year, he ensures that this year we will see more dollars. Last year, his big point is that $223 million additional dollars went to K-12 education. That's $163 million more than inflation. Of course, inflation is always a factor when we talk about our checkbooks. But he's convinced that this year we will continue to see more dollars pumped into classrooms. And here's a short sample from the interview. First, I want to challenge the fact that we're not doing well on nationwide tests. Arizona leads the nation in improvement in fourth grade and eighth grade. And this is reading, math, and science. And this is why I'm saying that we do see signs of progress. But we do have a teacher shortage here in the state of Arizona. And we're not the only state. So this isn't just an Arizona issue. It's an American issue. In last year's State of the State, the governor said he wanted to bring more businesses into Arizona. Has he made progress in this area, and do you think business uh, will be a main component of Monday's speech? When you talk to the governor, he's very proud that Raytheon, Comcast have all expanded here in Arizona, Caterpillar bringing its headquarters here. One of his big sticking points is that these workers come here, they want a good education for their children, those families will spend money. He's trying to lure California businesses to come to the state of Arizona because California continues to raise its taxes, regulations are increasing, and he's saying, if you come from California to Arizona, I will make it worth your while. Well, that will add to the population of the state. And in last year's address, the governor only made one mention of the future of our water supply. So in light of population growth and the ongoing drought, what kind of water plan is Governor Ducey putting forth? Interesting, Mark. Seven million people call Arizona home now. That's a 9% increase since back in 2010. Lake Mead, which gets its water from the Colorado River, as we know, is at 38% capacity, which is not great, but we don't have restrictions or any sort of problems for 2018. The governor says that's because we've done careful planning over the years. 
What we want to see is the state speak with one voice regarding water. We want to make certain that we don't pick winners and losers on this, that we collaborate on water and that we think long term. The last thing that we're going to do is bad water policy or cut corners so that we can have development. When we're growing in the state of Arizona, we want to make sure that there are assured water resources for all Arizonans. Lorraine, as of this week, you began as host of the new program, Arizona 360. Uh, What do you think it offers viewers that's new? Mark, what I'm really excited about doing is making things simple for people to understand. I want families from different areas of Arizona to be able to watch our program and to feel that they're getting a simple and informed approach to a policy that may affect their lifestyle. I want to make it easy for everyone to understand. I'm from Arizona. This is important to me that everyone has a grasp and understanding of the issues that affect them. The debut episode of Arizona 360 is Friday evening at 8.30, and then you can see a repeat on Sunday at 11 a.m. on PBS 6. You can also watch it online at azpm.org. Thank you for your time, Lorraine. My pleasure, Mark. The popular PBS science show Nova kicks off its new season Wednesday, January 10th with a two-hour episode about the most enigmatic of space mysteries, black holes. They made news in 2017 after observatories began sensing gravitational waves, ripples in space-time that originated from neutron star collisions. Black holes form after the collapse of these massive stars, and scientists can now hear these objects in addition to detecting them with telescopes. Next, AZPM science reporter Sarah Hammond speaks with two Tucson-based astronomers who will be featured in the next edition of NOVA. Fariel Ozell of the University of Arizona Stewart Observatory and Todd Lauer of the National Optical Astronomy Observatory study black holes, and both were interviewed for NOVA's Black Hole Apocalypse program. Here's Ozell, followed by Lauer, explaining what a black hole is. At its simplest form, a star that has run out of fuel and collapsed to what we call a singularity, something that is extremely dense, infinite density, in fact, at its center, and it interacts with its surroundings through its gravitational pull. It's a large concentration of mass in space. It's so concentrated that the gravity actually bends light and prevents light from escaping it. You can think of it sort of like a dark globe, or really, as it's called a hole, a hole in space. You can get into it, you can't get out of it. Over the last few decades, we've realized that black holes are common in the universe. They're part of every galaxy. And further, it looks like they have something to do with how galaxies are made, what they actually look like. We are still learning about what what they do. They play a part in shaping the universe, but that's something we're still trying to figure out. Lauer searches for the largest black holes in the universe using the Hubble Space Telescope. Ozell studies them theoretically by trying to understand how they interact with their environments using computer simulations. The NOVA film has been two years in the making. Both provided their expertise as the story was coming together. My best hopes... Um, for the NOVA episode, which I haven't seen yet, so I, I don't know how they're going to do it, is it's very exciting, you know, to think about black holes. They're so bizarre and odd in what, what they do. But I hope that 
people are able to see the story or the science underneath of that. That's really what we want to get across. Uh, the work that we do as astronomers is to teach the public, really to answer the questions they have about how did we get to where we are, how is the universe made. There is a human element to this, well, that, that scientists devote their entire lives in quest of answering something and getting data that increases our understanding of it. Um, so we really would like to explain the science as best as we can on the episode. So how do the creators of NOVA select the subjects and how do they approach the project? NOVA's senior executive producer, Paula Apsell, was in Tucson in December and talked about how complex scientific topics come to the small screen. So what we're doing is really looking for subject areas that can be formed into a story that you can actually tell a story about because storytelling is the most important way to engage people in science. And we're also looking for topics that have really interesting visuals. When we ask our viewers what they want, what they tell us is they want to be taken to a world that is not familiar to them. They want to see things that they can't see in their own lives. And additionally, we want to have good scientist characters because science is fundamentally a human endeavor. We also want to be able to follow a process. Because I think what differentiates NOVA from other science programs is that we're not interested in the, quote, breakthrough. We don't make shows about breakthrough. We make shows about a quest, a search to learn and to find things out about the world that we live in. NOVA, Black Hole Apocalypse, will air Wednesday, January 10th at 8 p.m. on PBS6. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Sarah Hammond. Films about political events run the risk of becoming dated quickly. But next, Chris DeShiel tells us about an influential Mexican film that was once hard to see in the United States. It's now been reissued, and it's waiting to be discovered by a new generation who may find it as relevant today as when it was made. In Mexico City on October 2, 1968, an estimated three to 400 students and civilians were shot dead by police and military forces during demonstrations against the government. Mexico's ruling party tried to cover up this atrocity, and it became taboo to even mention the subject in public. But eight years later, in 1976, director Philippe Casals and screenwriter Tomas Perez Torrent managed to break the silence in a roundabout way. They made a film called Kanoa, A Shameful Memory. And although until recently it was little known in the States, it had a tremendous impact in Mexico and inspired an entire generation of Mexican filmmakers. Kanoa is not about the Mexico City Massacre, but an event that occurred in September, two weeks before, in the village of San Miguel Kanoa, just a few miles east of the city. A group of college students were visiting in order to go hiking on a nearby mountain. The local priest, who is also the town's political boss, spread the word that the strangers were communists, there to agitate against the church. There had been a lot of student unrest in the capital, and the priest had been denouncing the radicals for quite a while. 
That night, the students were attacked by a mob of townspeople. Three of them were killed, hacked to death with machetes. One of the most remarkable things about Kanoa is its groundbreaking style. At times, it seems like a documentary, with a peasant, a local villager, talking directly to the audience about Kanoa and what it was like to live there. Alternating with this style is a dramatic recreation of events. First, we see a reporter getting news of the lynching by phone, so the audience already knows what's going to happen. Then Cazals brings us back in time to the five young men planning their hiking trip. We also meet the sinister village priest, stunningly played by the Mexican film star Enrique Lucero. He wears sunglasses, which make him look like a gangster. And yes, the real-life priest did wear sunglasses all the time. Now, priests were always portrayed positively in Mexican movies up to this time, so this demagogue, inciting his flock to murder, was a very radical change for viewers. Lucero, who had appeared in a lot of Hollywood movies over the years, including The Magnificent Seven and The Wild Bunch, didn't want to play this part and had to be persuaded by Casals, who explained to him the potential importance of the film. He's perfect. Not a snarling fictional villain, but a very plausible depiction of how a priest with extremist convictions would act. Throughout the film, we continue to alternate between the quasi-documentary and traditional dramatic styles, and with jumps back and forth in time. The tension builds inexorably to the climactic disaster. One long and brilliantly conceived sequence takes place in the home of a man who was letting the students stay overnight at his house. He gets to talking about Kanoa, the bad influence of the priest on the residents, and of various incidents of injustice and repression that have occurred in recent times. As he talks, we hear a distant murmur, a kind of rumbling that very gradually gets louder and louder. The students are unaware, but we know that the villagers are shouting and gathering to lynch the students. We already know what's coming, but even with this knowledge, the building of tension in the scene is almost unbearable. It's not just suspense, but a kind of horror at our powerlessness to stop what's going to happen. It's one of the most nerve-wracking and terrifying sequences I've ever seen in a film. Kanoa vividly dramatizes how masses of people, especially the poor and uneducated, can be whipped into a frenzied mob by their leaders, political and religious, to commit violence against perceived enemies. It portrays the pervasive environment of fear that was ever present in Mexican political life and the extreme hostility towards left-wing dissent by the powers that be. By transferring the explosive emotional impact of the Mexico City massacre to a smaller, lesser-known violent event, it allowed the grief and anger and commitment to fight injustice inspired by the massacre to find expression in a film that ended up becoming a surprise hit in Mexico. The fact that it was made at all was a kind of miracle. The head of the Mexican Department of Cinema at that time was in fact the brother of the President of Mexico, who had been the Minister of Interior in 1968, essentially in charge of the forces that carried out the October massacre. Yet the film minister allowed the picture to be made because of his own ambition. He wanted to make a splash on the world stage for Mexican film, and he was also motivated by competition with his powerful brother. In any case, Cazal shot the movie in four weeks, and none of it was censored. So now, 50 years later, have conditions in Mexico improved? I'd have to say yes, but keeping in mind the suspicious disappearance of 43 activist students in 2014, I'd also have to say not nearly enough.
For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShiel. Jack Lemmon was a true movie star. His career lasted exactly 50 years, including critical and popular hits like The Apartment, Days of Wine and Roses, The Odd Couple, Save the Tiger, and Glengarry Glen Ross. As much as his acting, Lemon was beloved for his sharp wit and upbeat personality, qualities that were inherited by his son, Chris, who was born in 1954. In addition to a four-decade movie and TV career of his own, Chris now teaches a film course at the University of New Haven, Connecticut. He wrote a book about his famous father in 2006 called A Twist of Lemon, and that serves as the basis for a stage play that he's bringing to Tucson this weekend with two performances at the Berger Performing Arts Center. I asked Chris Lemon about the ups and downs of bringing this heartfelt tribute to life. It is that most perilous form of entertainment, the one-person performance with music, with classical pianistic performance, as well as me playing and singing and, and uh, doing dialogue at the same time. That's the hardest one of all. That's like, like patting your head and rubbing your tummy with four arms. So it's been an enormous challenge um, and a wonderful challenge for me at this point in my career to be able to combine my three favorite things, writing, acting, and, and music, uh, into, uh, into one project I really do believe in the message of this show, uh, the message of, of a father and a son, uh, of a, a unique yet in so many ways universal father-son relationship, uh, of the fact that all of our relationships are flawed because we are flawed beings, and, uh, and we, we all have faults. And if we don't hold that against each other, if we understand that about each other, then we can rise above and... and uh, forgive is so the wrong word because it's just judgmental and arrogant but but just know that about each other that we are human and i think that's one of the most magical things uh we're able to do uh not to mention jack is just so damn much fun i mean the guy was a human leprechaun you know it's i mean and i you know i did i do the whole thing as him i do it in his voice chris when i think about you and your father i think gosh you had to share him with the world. You didn't have the advantage that some people have of being able to command their father's attention when you needed it because he was needed by so many others. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think that's interesting. I, I don't know that that's necessarily unique just to the, to, to the entertainment industry, especially not in that generation, of that generation. Um, I, I think that there was a lot of kids vying for their, their parents' attention um, uh, during the whole pre- and post-World War era. Um, uh, it's, it's one of the lines from the book. I see the same look in my father's eyes as he looks at his father that I felt in my own so many times, and that was that need for approval and for that attention. Um, so I don't think it's, it's necessarily unique. Uh, that being said, my father was an extremely emotionally generous man uh, to everyone around him. It's just that the son, especially, I think, in a father-son relationship, is the one who wants even more. When your dad was doing films and was off-shooting on location and so forth, did you feel a connection to him as a kid? Was, was he able to reach back and, and make himself present in the family, whether it was just through phone calls or postcards or whatever? I mean, kind of how did that play out for you as a young man growing up with your dad doing these incredibly glamorous jobs? 
Well, no, he wasn't actually, and that's the whole core of the story is the fact that he was ripped apart from me. At, when I was only three years old, uh, my mother and father were divorced, and uh, the fact that you know Hollywood put a hammerlock on its huge stars, and he was a huge star, uh, top box office grossing actor in the world for many years running, through divorce and through remarriage where I wasn't welcome in the second marriage, uh, and in that house uh, that they created together, uh, we were ripped apart. And so there was that empty chair at the end of the dinner table, the one where the father's supposed to go. Uh, and it was really very, very difficult. Um, and at the same time, there was my personal struggle as an adolescent and, and uh, to find my own identity. I mean, that's no easy task for any kid, but when you're identified as an object and not a person, um, pretty much by everyone, uh, and by that I mean never being known to people as Chris Lemon, literally being known to them as Jack Lemon's son, it places even that much more, you know, onus on, on trying to, you know, find that path to who am I? Uh, so there was all of that working against it. Uh, that being said, at the same time, uh, he understood that situation and he did his best to try to bridge that gap. And one of the really hands-on ways he had of doing that was to uh, create a yearling, a yearly adventure for us which began fly fishing up in Alaska, catch and release fly fishing. And, and ultimately, once I started making it uh, as an actor, uh, turned to the Pebble Beach Golf Tournament, uh, which was enormously important to him. He had attempted for 35 years running to make the cut at Pebble Beach, and it's the one thing I think the one regret he had in life was that he never did do that. And I was able to share his last 11 years there with him, uh, uh, which was an absolutely magical experience. Because by then we had bridged that gap, and we had come back together and, and, uh, and become the best of friends against all odds. You say that music plays an important part in the, uh, in the play. So, oh, absolutely. So where did that come uh, into your well, life? Well, he was a terrific pianist. That's what a lot of people, well, the ones who remember Jack Lemmon, know what a brilliant actor he was and, and the fact that he had this worldwide fame. But they don't really know that he was really an extremely talented pianist. That was passed on to me uh, after he and my mother were divorced for reasons you will hear up on stage. Um, and my mother plays a, a very prominent part in the, in the narrative of the play as well. Uh, my father, because he never stopped loving her, uh, which is the honest truth, um, would come to her, her little place that she had on the beach pretty much every day. And, uh, and he'd sit down and play the piano. Of course, I was just absolutely enamored with him. Um, and so I'd, you know, run over and start a, a booming accompaniment. And he finally turned to me one day and says, listen, look, kid, if, if you're going to play with me, you're going to have to learn how to play. You've got to take some lessons. And uh, so, <laughs> so I did. And he taught me to play the piano. And that's a large part of, of the uh, sort of the tentpole of the first act is, is Pop, uh, you know, uh, teaching me. He te teaches young Chris how to play the piano. Uh, and I went on to become a classically trained pianist because of it. Do you have a profound memory of the first time you saw your dad on the big screen? Yes and no. I tell this story in the book. It's not in the play, but... You know, the fact that some kid came running up to me and said, uh, you see that kid over there, He's, his dad's more famous than your dad because his, his dad is Jim West on the Wild Wild West. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, well, I didn't know my, my dad was famous. I thought he was just an actor. Um, I don't think kids, or at least I, didn't really get that, uh, you know, whole separation. But uh, the first 
thing I remember really with delight is being on the set of The Great Race because it was just a Blake Edwards a film, magnificent comedy for anybody who hasn't seen it. It was for a kid, 11 years, 10 years old, I think I was, um, being on that set and watching them film that uh, and then seeing that film. I look back and, and think, oh boy, yeah, um, that, that was one of the first things I remember. And the wonderful thing was later on, we all got to do a film together with Blake uh, called That's Life. Uh, with Blake and Julie and, and the Edwards clan and, and us lemons. So that was kind of a, a neat thing. I wonder, your dad either seems like one of the most recognizable stars in history or the kind of guy that people might not actually notice. They might think, oh, that guy looks a little bit like Jack Lemon, but they might not realize it was him. What was the truth of the matter? Did you... He was pretty hard not to notice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, he was... Again, he was just all sorts of fun, and wherever he went, it was it was contagious. You just couldn't help but be caught up in this whirlwind of energy, and and he was just so full of beans and great to be around. <laughs> so yes, you you didn't when Jack was in the room, you knew Jack was in the room, but he didn't make any pretensions about it. If that's uh, you know proper syntax, I mean, the guy was really very down to earth as a human being. Um, and again, enormously emotionally generous. He cared about everybody around him much more than he did himself. Uh, it was Jack for about 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and then it was just really a, a great guy to hang out with. Uh, and that is across the board. Um, you, you know, I've never heard a bad word about the man uh, spoken by anybody. Uh, and uh, on the contrary, all I've ever heard were, was just glowing praise and loving memories. I mean, if you're looking for wire coat hangers, you're coming to the wrong play. There are, you're not going to find any in this one. Right. Um, however, that being said, it is my duty as a narrator to expose all the bumps in the road. And there is no such thing as a full uh, parent-child relationship without them. They can be tragic, and this is a very tragic story, honestly, at its core. A father and a son ripped apart, stayed that way for 30 years, finally came back together, the very best of friends, and then he dies at the age of 76 and leaves me again. But again, it's couched in the lore of this incredible age when, you know, I mean, at the age of six, I was yanked out of my bedroom, you know, as, or, well, I was, I was actually standing in the doorway watching one of my father's parties, and Jimmy Cagney saw me you know, came over and grabbed me and pulled me into this room with Billy Wilder and Gregory Peck and Shirley MacLaine and Hank Fonda. And, and here I am, a six-year-old kid in this whirlwind of, I mean, these these incredible, you know, beings uh, that, you know, that, uh, and, and anyways, you, you get the idea. I, we, we lemons tend to wander when we, we answer questions. We, we, we could walk about for a bit. <laughs> The Invisible Theater presents Chris Lemon and his one-man show, A Twist of Lemon, this Saturday and Sunday at the Berger Performing Arts Center. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.